0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, today we'll be reading Psalm 6, so if you want to turn there, that'd be cool, if not, you're missing out. Um, so this is it's titled, A Prayer of Faith in Time of Distress. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O oh Lord, how long? Return, O oh Lord, deliver me, O oh, save me from O oh, save me for your mercy's sake, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. all night, I make my bed swim, I drench my couch with tears, my eyes waste away because of grief. it grows old because of all my enemies apart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Great,
1: done. Alright, thanks, Ethan. That's perfect. Alright, well this morning we have something special actually for the next four weeks as we've been talking about. Brother Carl is going to be uh, going through a prophecy update, so I'm excited. I've been looking forward to it, and so hopefully you guys will be blessed with all that the Lord's going to do this morning. So, All right, my brother Carl, let's, uh, let's pray for you, and then we'll start. Lord, we just thank you for today and for all that you continue to do and all that you want to do in our hearts and our lives, Lord. And we ask that now at this time, as we just give attention to your word and and specifically, Lord, just um, what you are uh, said you're going to do in the end times and how that relates to us today, and where does that put us on that timeline of events that you have uh, laid out since the beginning of the world, Lord, you uh, or before time, actually. You, you had a plan, and it's coming to pass. Nothing can hinder that. Slow it down, change it, or stop it, Lord. You have ordained it, and... Uh, Father, it's always encouraging to see where we are in that place, and you've given us information. Uh, you've not left us wondering. Uh, and so, Father, it's, it's just great. As we see the signs coming our way, Lord, it just reminds us to draw closer to you and live, uh, if you've called us to live, and in the excitement and the joy that will be ours one day when we join together with you. And so we pray that that would just spur us on and draw us closer and Remind us uh, uh, you're in control and uh, you love us uh, beyond measure, Lord. We thank you for it. Bless our brother Carl, Lord, as he shares with us uh, for the next few weeks, Lord. We Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, my brother, you're
2: on. Thank you. Good morning, Calvary Chapel, Watsonville. Good morning. Dylan promised me uh, four weeks. Uh, I can tell you it's going to take a year. Uh, (laughs) But I don't have that amount of time, so... I'll I'll, uh, cut this down to the four weeks and stick with that plan.
0: Amen.
2: Okay. Well, I want to talk about science and I want to talk about theology today Um, because they kind of seem to pull together and relate in some of the Bible. It almost seems science fiction-y. So, you know, on any clear night, people throughout history have observed this big bright object in, this, in the heavens, in the sky, it's called the moon. And some have actually dreamt about going there. Believe it or not, a guy named Lucian of Samosada in the second century AD wrote about riding in a boat that was pushed to the moon by a giant waterspout. So men have thought about this for a long time. Johannes Kepler, a famous astronomer from history, wrote a book about going to the moon in 1608. That's a long time ago. You won't believe that Edgar Allan Poe actually wrote a short story about going to the moon. In a, the short story was called The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fall. He's from Rotterdam. And he was bankrupt and had a bunch of creditors and he was just in trouble. And so he figured out that he would create a balloon and escape his creditors by writing that balloon to the moon. Okay, Edgar, thank you very much. <laughs> I think we're all pretty aware that uh, Jules Verne, uh, big science uh, fiction writer, um, wrote a book from the Earth to the Moon in 1870. H.G. Wells, we probably are aware of him as well. The first Men of the Moon was written in 1901 and turned into an early movie. So besides the literary endeavors of going to the moon, film and television fascination uh, with space travel and uh, imaginary, Uh, fanciful spaceships and odd uh, space-dwelling beings. Um, I can think back to my early childhood. We used to watch Lost in Space. Uh, We watched Buck Rogers. Uh, We watched Flash Gordon. Interesting. But you know, in the late 1950s and early 60s, and I was around then, an event happened that immediately pumped huge amounts of money into science education in our elementary schools our middle schools our high schools and our colleges and universities that event was part of what was called the space race between the united states and the soviet union and that event was the launch of sputnik it was the first earth orbiting satellite Um, launched on uh, October 4th, 1957. So on Tuesday, that's going to be 65 years ago that it was launched. Um, This satellite was not that big. It weighed uh, 184 pounds. It was about 23 inches in diameter. It had a radio transmitter in it that uh, transmitted back just beeps, just simple beeps, just to show that we could communicate with something in outer space. And the battery only lasted for three weeks. And the satellite only lasted for three months to the day. Uh, And then it it came crashing and burned up through the atmosphere. But it launched the biggest uh, race about science in outer space. It was quickly followed up by other uh, Soviet satellites. And America got into the race and launched their own satellites, and eventually uh, ended up with men going into outer space. And my mom wanted me to be in school, but when there was a space launch, she let me stay home and watch the space launches. And I had my notebook out, and I'd fill the notebook with all these kind of notes on what kind of propulsion it was and how many pounds of thrust and what fuel they were using and who's gonna go and what their training was. And I was just fascinated. So what did I do in fifth grade? I wrote to NASA. We were all encouraged to do something to follow up about what our career might be. So I uh, wrote a letter to NASA and they sent me back this really nice packet. And what did it have in it? Astronauts and spacecraft, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, And I really thought I would grow up to be an astronaut. In fact, when I was finishing high school, preparing to go to university, my goal was to become an astrobiologist. I was going to study all these plants and everything out uh, life forms out in uh, the universe. It also got me interested in science fiction and in the TV form of science fiction. So, of course, I got into Star Trek and all the Star Trek variations over uh, uh, over the years and Star Wars, you know, multiple movies in Star Wars. Star Trek Next Generation was one of my favorites. And in 1987, September the 28th to be exact, uh, they they, um, showed up an episode called A Matter of Time. And in that episode, a professed historian, uh, Professor Berlingoff Rasmussen, uh, supposedly came from 300 years in their future, back 300 years to the Enterprise, which presented some very interesting possibilities for the crew of the enterprise they could find maybe out things about their future as a matter of fact the chief engineer geordie laforge uh, was wondering if uh, he could get a glimpse into next week's poker game <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know mankind has probably always had a set uh, kind of a big fascination with knowing and understanding the future. In fact, back in the early days, all the way to today, astrology and occultism, a lot of what they're about is uh, providing insight into events that have not yet happened. So that's the science side of my presentation, (laughs) my lesson. Let's talk about theology for a while since that's why we're here. Christians believe that there is one who knows the entire future, and that is God. Since God existed in eternity past and created time and space, he transcends it. In fact, he can see all of time, like a person riding in a blimp would be able to look down on a parade and see the beginning and see the end, all at the same time, all in the same moment could see everything. God can do that, beginning to end. Um, Isaiah 46, 9-10 says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done. He understands the future. He sees it. So our study is going to take us into the heart of biblical prophecy, about the future. However, believers, if you can believe this, Bible believers don't have the exclusive opinion on human philosophies, belief systems, and worldviews. Theism, the belief in God or a God, is rejected by many in our world in favor of a worldview that worships materialism only. There is no spiritual. There's only physical in our universe. Even within theism, there's a really huge number of alternative beliefs about the future. Especially uh, especially when contemplating the future, even in the church, there are a lot of different views about what the Bible says. That's why it's important to begin any deliberation like we're doing today, uh about what the bible says about future prophecies with definitions of important terms i'm going to spend my time this morning we're talking about definitions of biblical terms related to the end times and let's start with the biggie the word eschatology e-s-c-h-a-t-o-l-o-g-y eschatology it's the part of theology concerned with death judgment the final destiny of the soul and humankind uh, of humankind and the study of end times uh, the doctrine of last things okay that's what eschatology is uh, about it comes from a Greek word uh, eschatos um, and um, logos uh, eschatos means last and logos obviously is study so the study of last things Wayne Grudem I know uh we both are admirers of a a lot of Wayne Grudem. Uh, I don't absolutely believe uh, the same things he does necessarily especially about the end times but he's a really good um, theologian and wrote a really nice uh, systematic theology. And he says this, although we cannot know everything about the future, God knows everything about the future and he has in scripture told us about the major events yet to come in the history of the universe. About these events occurring, we can have absolute confidence because God is never wrong and never lies. Now, we all have a personal eschatology. There's going to be an end to each of us. Uh, We have our own futures to live out, right? Right. But Grudem continues in his discussion and says, but the Bible also talks about certain major events that will affect the entire universe. Specifically, it tells us about the second coming of Christ, the millennium, the final judgment, eternal punishment for unbelievers and eternal rewards for believers, and life with God in the new heaven and new earth. Wow. So let's start with some scriptural facts, shall we? Number one, there will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus to the earth. Matthew 24, 42 says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And if we go to verse 44, Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man, one of his favorite terms for himself, is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's going to come back. He's been here before, he's going to come back. John 14, 2-3, a passage that's familiar to most of us. In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You got to figure that the disciples aren't that much different than we are okay we live in a little bit more modern world but they had similar thoughts they had similar lives they had similar hopes and dreams but to hear a man sitting next to them saying i'm going to go to my father's house which they understood to be heaven and then i'm going to prepare some places that so that where i am there you're going to be with me and i'm sure they thought what is wrong with this guy what is he telling us this sounds like if there was such a word as science fiction back then they would have thought it was science fiction they would have thought it was myth they would have thought it was a delusional guy and yet they had learned to trust jesus over the three years that he ministered to them so i think they found comfort in those words after jesus ascension so he's been killed now And remember, they didn't exactly initially believe in the resurrection. They heard it. They knew what Jesus said about it. But even after he resurrected, they didn't necessarily believe it. It took Peter and John running to the tomb and looking in there and seeing the grave clothes in place with no body to start thinking, now, what was that he said? Did, did, did he say he was going to bodily resurrect? Was he going to come out of the grave? And then he met with them. Now they watched him be crucified. They knew he was dead. Dead, not swooned, <laughs> not fainted, not carried away by grave robbers and brought back to uh, good health in a local hospital. No, no, no. He was dead. Roman uh, 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 soldiers who did the crucifixions were professionals. They knew how to kill somebody (laughs) and they killed Jesus. So here they are, Jesus is ascending into heaven. So now he's going bodily from them and the disciples must have been grieving. He's leaving us, why doesn't he stay with us? That's what I would wanna know. Why doesn't he stay with me? I love him, I wanna be with him. Then two angels appeared, and they they brought this message of comfort. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? You know, (laughs) well, what do you think? The sky goes up. That's why we're staring into heaven. Whoever did that before? (laughs) Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner As you saw him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? He went into heaven bodily. They watched him do that. And the angel said he's going to come back bodily. Okay? Secondly, about the return of Christ. As believers, we ought to eagerly long for his return. In Titus 2.13, Paul says... We should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm looking forward to it. In 1 Corinthians 16.2, he used the term Maranatha, which means, O Lord, come or come back quickly. It's an Aramaic word, which was the, the language spoken at the time. The primary, it's an adjustment of the uh, Hebrew language uh, from when the Jews came back from Babylon. They had kind of adapted their language, and it was called Aramaic. So the word Maranatha means come back quickly. We should be longing for Jesus to come back. Fact number three, we don't know when he's coming back. Anybody in here want to gamble on that? <laughs> Besides Matthew 24, uh, 42, which we just read, Matthew 25, 13 says, "'Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming.'" And he expanded on that. Mark reports that he said, "'But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, For you do not know when the time is." So broader than the day or the hour, even the time. But we also know that in Matthew 24, Jesus presented us with a number of signs about the era in which he would return. And we're going to actually look at that in depth next week. Okay. So that's the end. No, just kidding. You know, there's a lot of disagreement, even among believers, uh, about the process and the timing of the return of Christ, and we're going to look into that. The typical evangelical position is that there are going to be two uh, visits to the earth by Jesus. So He'll be coming the first time, the first Advent, the Christmas story that we celebrate um his life, his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection ascension. And then he's going to actually return again. Now, we're going to look at some of the timing later, but the fact of his return uh, first is presented in First Thessalonians 416 to 17 in an event called the rapture, okay? So, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So he's coming back for his church, okay? And that's the rapture. The physical return of Jesus to the earth with the saints to conquer his enemies and set up his kingdom is his actual return to uh, stand upon the earth. It's actually predicted back in the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is one of those terms that we use speaking about end times, the latter days, the... the, uh, second advent Um, those are all kind of synonymous terms in Zechariah uh, um, the author says uh, then the lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle and in that day his feet will stand on the mount of olives which faces jerusalem on the east and the mount of olives shall be split in two from east to west making a very large valley Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. So the Old Testament prophesied that that the Lord is going to come to the earth uh, in a different sense than other reports, other prophecies about him coming to the earth and living among men. In Revelation 19.11, we see the future fulfillment of that prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Jump to verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, you know. Sometimes Jesus is presented as gentle, the lamb, the meek, the mild, uh, but not as Lambo, uh, as this fierce warrior who destroys his enemies and who rules the world with a fist of iron. That's the same Jesus. It's not a different Jesus that we're talking about here, but it's a different appearing of Jesus. Okay. So we've established that jesus is going to come back bodily uh in person to the earth and he's going to rule okay so when does this kind of stuff happen well the bible talks about what we term the tribulation period so what's the tribulation period okay Um, i'm only going to give a few details because i'm going to really follow this up with a whole lesson on the tribulation And I think we'll hit that next week. Okay, so what is it? It's a seven-year period in the future which God brings his judgment on mankind. It serves a couple of different purposes. Number one, it brings to the end the time of the Gentiles. Now, this can refer in some people's thoughts about the rule over Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. It's been in Gentile hands for a couple thousand years. Actually, in the 1960s, the... uh, Jews took back over the rule of the uh, city of Jerusalem, so it it makes sense to think about the uh, rule over Jerusalem as being the time of the Gentiles, uh, all the Romans, um, the Arabs, the um, the English and French. Uh, who fought over Jerusalem in the Crusades. Okay. But it also probably a little bit more biblically refers to the church age. When the church was first uh, initiated um, back at the day of Pentecost, up until the day of the rapture, everybody's gone. Then the tribulation period happens after that. So to bring it, to the end, the time of the Gentiles, okay? Purpose two, to prepare the regathering and restoration of Israel for the millennium. Now, it's not just Jews that go into the millennium, uh, and we'll talk about the millennium in just a minute, Um, but God's people are the focus of the scripture from the beginning to the end of the Bible, okay? Um. The, the purpose of the tribulation is not really, as some Christians will say, uh, to purge the church, okay? Or to discipline believers, okay? That's It's not presented that way in the scriptures. Daniel 9.27, that very, very famous prophecy about the 70 weeks uh, of Daniel for the people of Israel um, in 927, it talks about the prince who is to come, and we know that as the Antichrist, who will confirm a covenant or contract with the nation of Israel for one week. Now remember, 70 weeks is just a, a translation of the Hebrew for, for sevens. So 70 weeks is 70 sevens, 70 periods of seven. And the way we, most of us interpret that is uh, a week is a year, literally a year. So, um, the prince who is to come has this covenant with Israel for one week, that would be seven years, okay? That's the time period for the tribulation that is uh, most frequently um, considered by scholars. The tribulation period in the Bible is divided into two halves. And that's another way that we can show that it's seven years. Uh, Daniel 7.25 and 12.7 and Revelation 12.14 uses the term time, times, and half a time. And again, a lot of evangelical biblical scholars will look at that as time, one year, times, two years, and half a time, three and a half years, okay? So that's half of a seven year period. And if we break the tribulation into two periods, which even Jesus seems to do, we have three and a half and three and a half, okay? So time, times and half a time. Think about that when you see it in the scriptures as being half the tribulation period. In Revelation eleven two and thirteen five, uh, they use the term 42 months. Okay. Now, how long is 42 months? Well, if you multiply 12 by 7, 7 years, 12 months by 7 years, you get 84 months. And 42 is half of 84. So again, it's looking at half of a tribulation period. Okay. In Revelation eleven three 3 and 12, 6, it uses the number 1,260 days. Now, if, if we have 42 months of 30 days, and we're using the Babylonian, the ancient Babylonian calendar. Their months were all 30 days long. And we multiply 42 by 30, we get 1260. And so again, that's half the tribulation period, showing that the tribulation, for us, the tribulation period, our understanding is that it's seven years. Okay, Now there are Old Testament references to the tribulation period. It doesn't really talk about the length of it, but it just talks about end times. So Dan, uh, Deuteronomy 4.30 uh, says when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, the latter days, the end times, the, the end days, the uh, time of the end, when you're in distress. So there's an introduction to the idea of a tribulation uh, period for them, for the Jews. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says alas for the day is great so that none is like it and it is a it is the time of Jacob's trouble so that's the old testament term specific term for the tribulation period Jacob's trouble and yes indeed Israel experiences a whole lot of trouble during the the uh, tribulation period Daniel 9:24 We've already mentioned the 70 weeks. 924 says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, the Jews, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. And in verse 27, it talks about one who makes desolate. So there's going to be a desolation during that final week of the 70 weeks of Daniel. So that seven-year period is going to be one of desolation. That's Introduced in the book of Daniel. In Zechariah, chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, it says, And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire. We'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And then we go to uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. These are features of what the book of Revelation presents as the tribulation period. Now, Jesus also confirmed that there's going to be tribulation, okay? Matthew 24, verse 29, speaking about the end times, Jesus refers to the tribulation of those days. Very specific days. He's just been discussing with his disciples. There's going to be tribulation of those days. And in 24, 21, he was warning the Jews to flee Um, persecution at the midpoint of the tribulation period and he stated and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor shall ever ever shall be so Jesus divided that seven-year period into the tribulation and the great tribulation the way we look at that scripturally is the tribulation is that first half, the first three and a half years, the first 42 months, the first 1,260 days, okay? Uh, And the second half is called the Great Tribulation. And Revelation is going to actually show us uh, the difference between those two time periods. They're both not good. Nobody wants to be there during that period of time, right? Amen? But the second half of the tribulation period is really going to unfold the full fury of God's wrath against fallen mankind okay let's talk about the next term the rapture and i'm going to spend a whole lesson on this one too so we'll just touch on it here uh introduce the term to you what is the rapture it's the instantaneous translation of all true believers in christ to heaven okay now the word rapture you're not going to find it in our English Bibles. It doesn't exist in the English Bibles. So there are critics out there who say, what What are you talking about? Rapture isn't even in the Bible. How can you say that the church is going to get raptured? Well, Jerome translated the Greek in, in Latin, uh, into Latin, and he used the term uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The term was caught up in the uh, he, the, the Greek, okay, they use the term "cut up. He used the Latin term <laughs> harpazo, and from that we get the English word rapture, okay? So, yeah, it's not in the original language, but what is the original language? Some would say it's not even Greek, it's Aramaic. There's arguments on both sides, I'm not going to argue that today, but the word rapture is a doctrine of the church that comes directly from the scriptures, from Paul's writings here. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 to 52, we just studied this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Where's the trumpet? I'm waiting. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 18. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, notice Paul includes himself here. He thinks this is going to happen soon. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up. We just mentioned that. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 2 okay. Thessalonians 2.1, um, a less frequently used word reference to the rapture. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So the rapture is the Lord's catching away of the church to heaven at some point in the future. Um, One of my early, early Christian life Uh, favorite authors was a guy named Hal Lindsey. He wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. It was all about the end times. It got me fascinated. And I really thought, as did uh, my pastor Chuck Smith and many of us Christians back then, thought the rapture is going to happen really soon. We were talking about in the next year, in the next five years. We were just expecting the Lord to return so soon because a lot of the signs seemed to be there. We were really rearing, ready to go. Take us home, Lord and I can say today, Amen. <laughs> Take us home, Lord. Okay, so um, he called the rapture the great snatch. <laughs> the Lord just reaches down and snatches us away. Okay. okay, so the next term I want to talk about is the church. We have to have a good understanding of what the church is and who the church is if we're going to understand end times prophecy correctly. Otherwise, You see a lot of the um, interpretation that's out there even in Christendom that is like quite a ways out there or just seems to be off, okay? And I'm not saying that we all have absolutely perfect understanding. Um, It's not that easy to uh, necessarily interpret the Scripture with absolute 100% certainty About everything the way we think it's going to happen eh, not sure but i think as evangelicals we have a pretty good understanding of how this is all put together in the scripture so let's let's talk about the church it's the science of ecclesiology and it comes from a greek word ekklesia which originally meant um, a gathering or an assembly so you want to get the citizens of town out to the local amphitheater and have a party, or a concert, or have a speech, or have a play, or whatever, that gathering was referred to as an ecclesia. But when the New Testament came into being, that term was used a lot more in relationship to the church, the gathering, the assembly of Jesus' believers, of God's believers, uh, to worship together and study together. Now, first of all, the church is not a building, okay? Uh, I think that's obvious to all of us. To be fair, Paul did metaphorically refer to believers as a building in 1 Corinthians 3, 9. He said, you are God's building. Well, okay, it's metaphorical. It's like we're all bricks built up to edify the edifice, okay? Those are all just metaphors. I don't want to turn into a clay block. At the end of my life and be stuck in the wall of some temple and have no eternal future with with jesus other than to be there be able to look at him as he passes by <laughs> no 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 the church comes from, uh like i said it comes from the greek ekklesia and jesus first used that term in reference to the church he used the word church in uh, matthew sixteen eighteen. now peter well, actually, the disciples were asked, who do you think that I am? Then Jesus says, who do you think I am? And Peter gives his uh, famous confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay. And Jesus says, yes. And uh, flesh and blood didn't re- reveal this to you. You know, the Lord revealed this to you. And then he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, little uh, the, the rock of the doctrine of the church. I will build my church. He used the word ecclesia. Okay, that's the first use of the word ecclesia referring to the church in the New Testament. Now we move ahead after Jesus was crucified, after he was buried, after he rose out of the grave, after he ascended into heaven and they waited 50 days for the day of Pentecost and they were waiting in a house. And what happened on that day? The Holy Spirit arrived and baptized them in the Holy Spirit, and the church was created, okay, on that day. And how do we know that? Well, in Acts 2:47, it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. He wasn't putting an addition on a building, <laughs> you know, he wasn't a contractor. Uh, But he was increasing the number of believers in uh, the Lord Jesus. So the church age began at that time and ostensibly ends at the rapture. Of course, we're going to discuss that. So is the church the community of all true believers for all time? That's going to be an interesting question as we move forward because... Uh, The term saints, which is applied to believers by Paul and other writers of the New Testament, uh, also found in the book of Revelation. And if we believe, as I do, that the rapture happens before Revelation, then wait a minute, there's going to be saints in the tribulation period. Does that mean that the church is going to live into the tribulation period and experience that? Well, we've already seen in in, in a couple of places where we're not we're not bound for wrath God's wrath okay and and we'll we'll actually discuss that more but um Jesus did tell us okay in the world you will have tribulation John 16 right but he didn't say you're going to experience the tribulation or go into the tribulation uh, Matthew sixteen eighteen ends with the gates of Hades will not prevail against it the church okay it's not going to prevail against the church In Revelation 13, 7, it describes the saints during the tribulation period, the saints now, who are overcome by the beast from the sea, also known as the Antichrist. And while the term church isn't used, is used in uh, chapter three and four, the implication in chapter, that's two and three, the implication in chapter four is that the church is already in heaven, worshiping the Lord. Okay. And then we go into the discussion, the description of the uh, tribulation period after that. So who are these saints in chapter 13? Well, saints is actually used in the Old Testament. But the tribulation saints are those who become believers in the Lord after the church has been taken into heaven. They're not called part of the church. They're actually distinctly represented in the book of Revelation as being different than the church. And have different events happen to and with them and for them. So, the book of Daniel does uh, focus on the future of the Jewish people, as we've said, but there are Christians today who believe that the church has replaced Israel in God's economy. But in Daniel 9, again, we love Daniel 9, it's a good chapter, 26 and 27, says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now, we all know that means he was crucified, but he didn't get crucified for himself. He had no reason to be crucified. He had no reason to die. Okay? He had no sin. He had the the wages of uh, sin is death. He had no sin. He didn't die for himself. He died for us. Amen? Amen? Yeah. And the people of the prince who is to come... So the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is the Antichrist coming out of the Roman uh, 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 Empire, the Rome, uh, the future of the Roman Empire. Okay, so we go back here, the people of that prince, those are the Romans, will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, which they did in A.D. 70, uh, General Titus um, from Rome. Uh, marched in and took over Israel, took over uh, Jerusalem, brought down the temple. Um, That's predicted right here. The end of it shall be with a flood. And that probably means like a dispersion. I I struggled with that one for a long time until I understood, okay, this means a dispersion. The people flooded around the earth, the Jewish people flooded around the earth to get away from Roman occupation. Uh, And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Okay, then it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with, now, who is the he, then he shall confirm a covenant. It just talked about the prince who is to come, okay? Then he, the prince who is to come, so we're jumping way into the future now, our future, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years, right? But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, splitting the tribulation period, as we've discussed, into two halves. And it happens at the abomination of desolation, which is the Antichrist setting himself up to be worshipped as God in the Jewish temple. Now, they don't have a Jewish temple today, but they're going to. Okay, There's a lot of plans already in place to put up a Jewish temple one of these days. And we're gonna get really excited about that next week. (laughs) Okay, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Again, talking about the tribulation period. Even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. That's the very end. That's the day Jesus returns and comes back. So verse 26 shows us that the first 69 weeks end with Jesus's crucifixion. And as to date, there haven't been any historical uh, references that fulfill verse 27. We haven't seen anything in history that relates to verse 27. Therefore, there is this unseen gap between verse 26 and 27, which represents the church age. Nice little parenthetical uh, mark in your Bibles between 26 and 27. The church age gap, (laughs) okay? However, there are many Bible passages that show God is still dealing with the Jews in a special way and into the future. They're not out of God's um, economy as some uh, Christian pastors would suggest. Okay, Colossians chapter one, verses 24 to 27 says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So that little dot that you put between Daniel 9 26 and 27 that's the mystery what happened to that gap that's the mystery and that's the church and Paul talks about that being the mystery which is now revealed um, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory now the mystery wasn't seen in Daniel 9 uh, it, it's uh, A gap, but we don't see it, but it is truly active in our current church age. The Holy Spirit lives inside us. Uh, Christ in you, Christ in us, the hope of glory. However, in the future, we're going to be in heaven. We will not need Christ in us. We will be with Christ. Whatever that means. Um, He's God. He can make that happen any way he wants to. Uh, Do we have to wait in line? Um, of you know, uh, hundreds of millions of people who have been saved over the years to stand and go hug Jesus, I don't think so. I don't think that's the way it works. He's God. He can make that work individually for us one on one, okay? So Christ in you won't be necessary. So I have a conclusion here. The church doesn't experience the tribulation, although a myriad of people on earth will commit their, lives to Jesus during this period, and this group is not the church, but it's called the Tribulation Saints in our modern uh, theology, the Tribulation Saints, okay? Contrary to what Jesus promised in Matthew 16, these believers do experience the gates of hell, (laughs) unfortunately, however, they are rewarded for their loyalty to Jesus. Okay, the next term is Antichrist antichrist is a term used specifically for one end times person this is a a capital a antichrist with a capital a okay he goes by many names in the bible and has the bible has a lot to say about him daniel 7 verse 8 there's daniel's vision of the four beasts right and he he writes after this i saw in the night visions and behold A fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Verse 11. I watched then because the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking, I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. If you jump ahead to Revelation 19 verses 17 to 20, you're going to see the fulfillment of that prophecy. Okay? Daniel 8. In the latter time of their kingdom, again, using that term, latter time, later days, end times interchangeably, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, the end of the time of the Gentiles, right? Um, A king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Who do we think is going to live inside of the Antichrist? Satan. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. Again, jump to Revelation chapter 19. You're going to see that happen, literally, okay, in our future. Daniel 9, 26. We've been there a few times. But the people of the prince who is to come, then if you look at verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. That's the Antichrist. Okay? that one person in our future who's coming. Daniel 11. Daniel spoke a lot about the Antichrist. This passage follows a prophecy about the rule of a Greek king named Antiochus V. His lineage uh, dates back to or traces back to one of the generals who followed Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great died in his early 30s, his four generals, main generals, took over one piece of his empire. And Antiochus took over Syria and the Middle East there. Okay? okay. There was somebody else in Egypt, that would be Ptolemy, um, but uh, Antiochus was in uh, Syria in the Middle East. And then in Daniel Daniel eleven twenty one it follows uh, when Antiochus died, it says, and in his place shall arise, now this is in, in the, quite into the future a wise person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Jump down to 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. The wrath, the tribulation period. right. For what has been determined shall be done. There's no doubt about it. It's going to happen. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses, with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. And then he has a whole bunch of military exports, exploits here, beginning in verse 44. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. There's going to be a big army coming from the east. It's going to be a big army that has descended from the far north. Therefore, he will, shall go out with a great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. We know that is Armageddon, uh, or Megiddo, or the valley of Jezreel. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Now, Zechariah also presents a picture of the Antichrist. Uh, uh, Chapter 11, verses 15 to 17. And the Lord said to me, next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. That's the Antichrist. For indeed I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and his right eye, his arm shall be completely shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Just a a hint of where we're going. That's a description of a wound received by the Antichrist that caused a lot of people mm-hmm. to believe that he was resurrected. This was a, a wound in which he died and, and later resurrected. Um, some don't believe that, that it looked like he was uh, dead or looked like he was dying and, and yet was healed and, and came back to health. But uh, that's for a later discussion. Let's jump to the New Testament 2 Thessalonians 2 1 4. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be so soon shaken or in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by work. Or by letter as if from us as though the day of christ had come because they believed that they missed it they missed the rapture it's gone it's over there's no chance now i'll never be with jesus for all eternity that's what they were believing he said don't don't believe that don't believe those who are telling you that let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin another term for the antichrist is revealed, the son of perdition, another term for the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Again, that's that abomination of desolation that happens right in the middle of the tribulation period. Verse 8, and then the lawless one, Another term for the Antichrist will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Now we jump into Revelation, and we see how he's described in Revelation. uh, Chapter 6, verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it, had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is part of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Okay. In chapter 13, we get the clearest presentation in Revelation of who this guy is. 13.1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. The beast. So we see him called the beast very frequently. Having seven heads and ten horns. We've already talked about that from the Old Testament. Here's the imagery presented in the in this uh, metaphorical presentation in the New Testament. Seven heads and ten horns. Not literally seven heads and ten horns sticking up out of his heads. This is a medical form metaphorical presentation of who this guy is. Okay. And on his horns, he had 10 crowns and on his heads, a blasphemous name. Verse three. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed. Didn't we see that in the Old Testament? Yeah. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. No kidding. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. That's Satan. And they worshiped the beast saying, "Who is like the beast? who was able to make war against him, war with him. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Okay, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and the authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Whew. That's a lot of information about this guy. I don't want to meet him. Anybody in here? No. Now, in all fairness, 1 John uh, 2 and 2 John verse 7 do refer to antichrists. Small a who are not this person because he talked about them in his lifetime, concurrently uh, antichrists who were deceivers in his time, trying to deceive the Christians into false beliefs. Briefly, let's talk about the false prophet. Who is that? The false prophet is a religious leader who will unite the people to worship the antichrist. In Revelation 13, 11 to 17, it says, Then I saw another beast. So this is the false prophet. Coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come on the earth in the sight of men. Who in the Old Testament did that? Do we know of any prophets in the Old Testament who made fire come down on Mount Carmel? Elijah. Elijah. Amen. Okay, so this guy, this false prophet, can do the same thing. He can make fire come down from heaven onto the earth, and people will see it. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived, He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Can you imagine people in that time saying, I want the Antichrist's name to be tattooed on my forehead. I am proud. But because it has to be in the right hand, there are going to be people who don't have a right hand. So a forehead makes sense, okay? But I, I think there are going to be a lot of people who are just proud enough just to put his name r- right out there. Just pff, label me. And unfortunately, the Bible says those people have no possibility. Of becoming saved, period. No possibility. Okay, three more things I want to quickly mention uh, to define, to help us through the study of the next three weeks. First, the apocalypse, eh, kind of a popular term in um, modern filmmaking, right? Okay, it's from the Greek "apokalypsis," and it means an unveiling Or a revelation. It's the Greek name of the book of Revelation, actually. Uh, But it's come to mean the end of the world, destruction, uh, terrible judgment, you know, because that's what happens in the book of Revelation, right? So the apocalypse. And we can just interchange the word apocalypse with revelation. That's what it means. It means the unveiling. We're going to show you. We're going to unveil. We're going to lift the curtain on the future and let you get a peek and see what that's going to look like. Another term that's frequently used in modern culture is Armageddon. Okay, Uh, another term that carries the meaning of widespread global judgment. Uh, It's the Greek. It's the um, in the Book of Revelation. It's actually the hills near the town of Megiddo, which is just to the south of the Valley of Jezreel, this huge, beautiful valley, uh, a valley that was visited by Napoleon. And he said, this would be the perfect place to have a war. What a perfect place to have a war. And um, the Antichrist is actually gonna set up his forces against Jesus. He's gonna initially set up his forces against those kings of the North, those kings of the East who are coming to battle him. And then all of a sudden they recognize, wait a minute, we better join forces because here comes the Messiah. Here comes the Lord. We better join forces and fight against Him. And that's going to happen at, at, it's called the Battle of Armageddon, but it's Har, meaning mountain or hill, and Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo on the outskirts of that Valley of Jezreel. There is actually going to be a battle. <laughs> uh, the Bible very clearly presents Jesus uh, saying the words and poof, they're gone. <laughs> Amen. Okay, the last term I want to talk about is the millennium. We're going to spend a week on the millennium. Uh, this refers to a thousand-year period that's described in several places in the Bible. Uh, lots of information about the millennium in the Bible. We're going to defer discussion uh, until our final lesson. So what's next now that we've defined these terms and we're ready to really jump into it What are we going to discuss next so next week? We're going to talk about the Olivet Discourse That's Jesus talking to his disciples when they ask us to, when they ask him about Tell us about these times that you're talking about these end times. Uh, what are gonna be the signs? How are we gonna know? Okay, so we're gonna talk about those signs and jump into some really wonderful discussions next week and uh, involving timing and stuff like that, okay? Week three, the fascinating study of the rapture, that one singular event. There are so many conceptions and misconceptions and uh, thoughts about the rapture, what it is, what it isn't, uh, when it happens, who it happens to, when it, you know, all those things uh, are, are a, a fascinating study, and even some of our modern theology is not so modern. Some of it is rather old. There are those who claim that the rapture was not understood at any time uh, in church history until last century, century and a half, maybe. Uh, it wasn't even, you know, considered a real thing. It was uh, metaphorical about something. Well, that's not true either. But we'll get into that, okay? So that's uh, week three. And then in our final wrap-up week, we're going to talk about the millennium and the eternal state. Those are two different time periods, one on earth, one in heaven and earth, um, and, and divided by a very unique event. And uh, we're going to spend some time looking at uh, those two big things. So for now, let's just praise the Lord and uh, turn to Him. Lord, we thank you for Uh, your scripture. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you know the future from now, from history. And you've presented us, you've pulled back the curtain, Lord, and you've shown us the future in this book of Revelation. And throughout the scripture, you've presented truths about this end time. We feel, Lord, that the end time is so close. Uh, In reality, just uh, at the door, Lord. And we long for, we look forward to being with you, Lord, Um, living eternally with you, uh, experiencing the fellowship with you and with each other throughout eternity. Not a boring place of sitting on a cloud and playing a harp, but fulfilling what you have called us to do and be, Lord, throughout uh, eternity. So we're hopeful, we're looking forward to it, Lord, And it causes us to worship and praise you. We just praise your holy name. We look forward to uh, our time together again. Bless us, Lord, as we go forth and share your love with others, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.